0: You're listening to From Woke to Work, the anti-racist journey. My name is Kamala Avila-Salmon, and I gotta be real with you. A black square on your Instagram does not make you an anti-racist, but there is a path. Join me as I guide you from becoming aware of racial injustice to actually doing something about it. Whether you're an ally ready to take action or just a Black person looking for someone else to answer all those ally questions, you're in the right place. It's time to go From Woke to Work. Hey guys, welcome back to From Woke to Work, the anti-racist journey. I'm your host, Kamala Avala-Salmon. Friends, we are getting so close to the end here. This is our penultimate step in the journey towards true, effective, committed anti-racism. And for those of you who are wondering what that fancy word penultimate means, it just means second to last. So last time we talked about the importance of allyship, what it means, how you can demonstrate it, and how to make it count. But you already know that this is not the final destination. Allyship, as important as it is for advancing racial justice, has its limits. I mentioned last time that the first version of the anti-racism journey that I put together and shared with friends on social actually didn't even have allyship at all. That's how incomplete and insufficient I felt it was on its own. But a very good friend of mine encouraged me to put it in, and I do think that she was right. Not only is it recognizable, it does have its use. As a non-Black person who's committed to doing more than just sitting on the sidelines, once you understand that systemic racism is real, this phase of interrupting it is an important place to get to. But it has many, many limits. Now, that alone will probably come as a shock to many of you who are self-described or aspiring allies because for at least the last 10 years or so, it seems like everyone was being called to be an ally to groups that they don't belong to in the name of equality. Allyship was supposed to signal a recognition of one's own privilege with respect to some vector of your identity and a willingness to insert yourself to push back on that inequality. Straight people could be allies to LGBTQIA people by supporting same-sex marriage, for instance. Men could be allies to women and throw their support behind equal pay. White people could be allies to people of color and actually call out white supremacy and so on and so on. But the operative word here is could. While allyship could and should signal a recognition of your own privilege and a willingness to leverage it for the gain of others, it doesn't always. Because I, like many other Black people, have seen how allyship, while it's become very much in vogue, it can also just become a convenient perch from which to tell Black people that you know what's best for them and how their liberation should be achieved and on what timetable. Too often, it can be wielded as a shield against any and all race-related critiques. I couldn't have done or said anything racist. I'm an ally. I go to Black Lives Matter protests. Case closed. It also can take on the air of charity. Allyship is a service that I do for the betterment of people who can't do for themselves. But ultimately, it has nothing to do with me. It demands nothing from me. I shouldn't have to give up anything personally. And if I'm successful in my allyship, it will improve their lives, but I'll be fine regardless. And to me, the most pernicious version of allyship is when it becomes a title that one bestows upon themselves just by virtue of whatever strong and altruistic feeling you have about a particular marginalized group at a particular moment, instead of being an action word, a word that has to be earned consistently. If you only remember one thing about this episode, let it be this. You should never, ever be the one to decide that you are an ally. You can't possibly know. That designation should come from the marginalized group that you're aiming to be an ally for. Trust me, if you're doing a good job at allyship, we will definitely let you know. So I think you can already tell that I have a lot of passion behind this topic. And I couldn't think of anyone better to invite to the conversation than Kalechi Okafor. Kalechi is a Black British actress, director, and public speaker born in Nigeria and raised in London. She regularly shares her perspectives on race on her social platforms in a way that is equal parts honest, witty, and brave. And as such, she goes viral a lot. So you've probably seen her work. Recently, her reflections on the absolute racist messiness of the Grammys' attempt to invite Tiffany Haddish to host the awards ceremony for free drew a very coherent line between this very public instance of expecting a Black woman to work for free and be grateful for it, and the more mundane ways that this shows up for Black women in their own lives, no matter what level of fame they have. It is everything, and we will be sharing the link in our notes. So, Kalechi, welcome, welcome, welcome to From Woke to Work. I'm so happy you're here.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you, Kamala. Of course. So, when
0: you and I met, we were both panelists in a Q&A session for Black women navigating predominantly white workplaces and seeking to remain authentic in the midst of it. After listening to you for a couple of minutes, I knew right then you would be amazing on our show and specifically for this episode. So, let's just dive in. When I say that there are limits to the ultimate usefulness of allyship as a strategy, what comes to mind for you?
1: What about allyship feels limited? Allyship feels limited because the ally, quote unquote, will always retain their privilege. How many allies have we met who are willing to go, you know what, I don't want anything. I relinquish all my privilege and I just want to be of service to you. The reality is that when we exist within a white supremacist patriarchal system, how much privilege can they really relinquish? Even if they turned around and said that they were going to eschew every, you know, thing that was given to them and brought their way every opportunity. The fact is the system will continue to do that for them. And while they do that, they'll still be protected by the system while they go on this altruistic venture.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think it's one of those things where, you know, you have to maintain this constant sort of vigilance and skepticism as an ally if you really want to be about the work. Because even in circumstances where it doesn't occur to you that white privilege is playing a role in how a certain situation is playing out or what opportunities are coming your way, more than likely it has some hand in it. And I think remaining ever vigilant about that is something that is really difficult for many people to do, because they want to believe that the majority of things that are happening to them are happening for truly meritocratic and effort-driven reasons, as opposed to what role could the patriarchy or white supremacy, or you know whatever the case may be be playing and how you know things are playing out for me. And so for me, one thing that really gets under my skin about the way that we've started to use the word ally, is that it's now started to refer to every white person, simply if they're not a card-carrying KKK member. Like, just the virtue of being white and not actively hating Black people in a conscious way that you're aware of makes you an ally. You don't have to have done anything in particular to help Black people or to advance racial justice or even be aware of it. As long as you're not actively harming them, to your knowledge, you too are an ally. And I know it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but not by much. I once worked for a very prominent tech company where I kid you not, the head of diversity would talk about people of color on one hand and allies on the other and use it to encompass the entire employee population as if either you're a person of color or you're an ally, that's it, there's no more options. It sounds silly, right? And I pushed back immediately because this kind of talk is so dangerous. It strips the word ally of any meaning. It strips it of its power, which is rooted in taking action. Now, I've heard it say that ally is a verb, not a noun. And when we just throw that word around, people don't even know that they need to take action to be an ally. They think they just need to be nice. So I'm curious, have you ever seen an instance where someone was declaring themselves an ally but you personally felt like you'd not seen any action from them either advocating for black people or advancing racial equity?
1: All the time, all the time I see this occurrence, this phenomena of white people generally thinking, you know what? I haven't lynched anyone today. So whew, great <laughs> for me, I, I have done my bit. Thank you guys. You know, Nobel Peace Prize for me. Meanwhile, the the actions that they go on to enact are, are violent beyond measure because actually a lot of it is psychological. It's the psychological games that are played with you that really go to kind of chip away at your being. And th- when we talk about racism, we don't talk enough, you know, in a larger context of the conversation about the mental health impacts that it has. You go out all the time into a world, you wake up, and you go out all the time into a world that keeps reflecting back to you that they don't like you in one way, shape or form. And then a white person is then going to come to you and go, oh, I understand your plight. But could you not raise your voice? Could you not be so aggressive? Could you, could you just focus on love and light? Could you just focus on positivity? Have you tried this stretch? You know, it becomes so diminutive, the centuries long struggle they try to encapsulate it in something that feels more palatable to them. And I think that that's part of the problem. And, you know, whenever I'm in sort of yoga circles specifically, I find it really interesting in the kind of whitewashing of yoga even, and the whole industry and how it's positioned for middle-class, upper-class white women. Yet Everyone's talking about, you know, namaste and finding peace, but who makes the outfits that you lot are wearing? because you're talking about allyship, you're talking about, oh, we're going to donate money to this particular charity here and there, but... Who makes the clothes that you lot wear that have these massive price tags? It's no longer about feeling great. And if it is about feeling great, why must your greatness that you feel be at the expense of other people who are usually darker than you? And so when we look at how the myriad of ways that allyship or they, you know, people perceive allyship to play out, all of it seems very, very violent to me. If, if not all of it, then 98% of it. I'm usually booked to do anti-racism workshops. And it's interesting, that when I'm booked by white women specifically who are heads of diversity and inclusion and all of that, that's when I see racism. That is when I see racism, you know, in its most co- sort of exuberant form where they are saying all of the terms that they've learned, but the actions within which the context within which they're saying it is still very violent. You know, I've, talked with the police force in this country, in the UK, and I've done anti-racism workshops with them. And, you know, I'm told off the bat that, you know, we're allies of the black community. We don't want to see this disproportionate stop and search rates that happen. We don't want to see this disproportionate sentencing and incarceration of black people. But could you please run by us what exactly you're going to be talking about in your PowerPoint presentation, just so we know it's not going to be too harsh. Harsh for who? Harsh for what? If if it's a truth, it's a truth, right? So that's what I find interesting about Allyship. It's it's not for our benefit. It's not for the benefit of the oppressed.
0: Yeah, that's so good because I think, you know, a few things that you talked about are so important. One is is the tendency to tone police. This this insistence that it's fine if you want to tell the truth, but just don't say it too harshly. We want to make sure that no one's turned off. We want to make sure that... and, And when you find yourself doing that as an ally, I think it's really important to think about, who am I doing this for the benefit of? Do the Black people in the room want the tone to be toned down? Do they want softer language or do they actually want tough language? And if I am changing, if I'm, especially if I'm asking a Black person to change the message that they're delivering, that I've invited them to deliver, to hopefully edify the organization around systemic racism, how do I insert myself there to actually elevate that Black person's voice as opposed to preemptively ask them to diminish it? You know, that, that is the level of allyship that I think so many of us would welcome. And yet that is the version that we don't often find. I I think it has become this badge of honor, this way to distinguish yourself from those other white people, whether those other white people are the police officers who disproportionately kill black people, or those white people are, you know, in the U.S., you'll hear it a lot, those people in the South or those people in this part of the country or that part of the country, you know, I'm not like that. You know, I grew up X, Y, and Z, and my parents taught me to treat everybody the same. It's like, okay, but did your parents also teach you that it's okay to live an entire adult life with no friends of color? Because <laughs> I, I, I would argue that's not ideal. I mean, stop me when I start telling lies.
1: <laughs> You've told no lies, none whatsoever. But I think it's interesting that you do say that about the who is Villainized, and who is made to be the villain when it comes to racism, when it comes to overt racism. And this is, I, I think, a real note for allies as well. It's so easy to paint the working class, as the real villain because they're uneducated. What we're told is that to be racist, there is an element of a lack of education. If only they knew better, they would do better. But what we find is those who put these mechanisms and these dynamics into place were very well educated. In fact, the whole educational system is inherently racist, it's systemic racism, institutional racism. So. We have it in the UK where they're like, oh, it's those, you know, it's those lot over there. It's the working class. You know, they're the ones who, you know, they're the racists. And it's like, well, no, who taught them to believe that I am the problem? Who taught them? Somebody taught them that this isn't a vertical issue, it's a horizontal issue, when really it isn't. I'm not the one that they should be fighting. They should be fighting you, the governmental authorities, the institutions, the systems. But instead, you've taught them, you socialize them into believing that it's those other people over there who are the issue.
0: So good. There's a quote that I'll just sort of give the gist of because I don't remember the exact wording, but I believe it's a Martin Luther King Jr. quote. And he basically alludes to the fact that instead of giving the poor white man bread, they gave him the black man to hate as a means to ensure that you would never remember to look up because you're looking and and you've been told, to your point, by the educated people. We have it in our country very, very plainly. Where, you know, we have this entire narrative that the reason why steel workers in X, Y, and Z, Rust Belt State can't get jobs, and bo- it's because of the immigrants. It's because of the, like, affirmative action that's giving unqualified black people jobs. It's because of this, that, and the third, right? As opposed to, it's because we have decided to create an education system that only replicates the people already at the top right? It's because we've decided to disinvest in any form of quality public education en masse. It's because of all of these other things for which I have no part in either as a Black person, not to mention that the majority of federal affirmative action policies in our country benefit white women far more than they benefit me. The data is real. And yet again, we are painted this picture. Same for the welfare queen, that was a narrative concocted by, to your point, very educated elite white people, telling them that, like, the reason we don't like welfare is because it's for, you know, poor black women that just want to have seventeen kids out of wedlock, you know, disguising the fact that the majority of the people that receive welfare in our country are white people, just necessarily so. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, again, it has become this badge of honor versus a call to service. I think the other trapdoor that aspiring allies need to watch out for is ensuring that their allyship never feels too comfortable. You know, if you are really trying to be an ally for a marginalized group, it should be uncomfortable at least some of the time, because the quest for greater equity and equality will inevitably at some point mean that you yourself might have to be willing to give something up. Something that you have might need to be recognized as an ill-gotten or a privilege-gained asset. So allyship without sacrifice is ultimately empty and it drives me crazy because I think this is where I have found many allies really start to lose their momentum. They're all for Black people not being shot by police officers, but when it comes to putting up the deserving Black people on their own teams at work for a promotion that might make that Black person appear to them and no longer a subordinate, they get very, very quiet in, in these promotion discussions. There is this ingrained sense that as long as I can remain where I am, I don't mind if you also progress. But if at any point you start to catch up to me now I'm concerned. So I'm I'm wondering if you've seen this phenomenon as well, this, this idea of sacrifice-free allyship popping up.
1: Definitely. I've seen, I think that that's all allyship is to me. It's, it's just a sacrifice-free circus. You know, it's, it's full of clowns as far as I'm concerned, because if we're talking about true allyship, you cannot do that without the willingness to lose something you might lose friends you might lose a possible promotion you might lose your job you know and and i think that there has to be the willingness to go all the way and a lot of people really aren't like people aren't willing to let go of the privilege that they truly have they're not willing to really sit down and examine what it is about the structure that's in place that they're benefiting from like you say they're happy to go to a black lives matter march and take a picture because let's be real, let's be serious. You're, a lot of people are going to these marches. Yes, we've got we're having numbers, we've got bodies of people, but a lot of people go, went to take pictures. I saw a few white women specifically, and I think that it's very important when we're looking at this dynamic and to see specifically white women who want to be allies how they move through the world. And I found that a few of them would have gone to these Black Lives Matter marches. They would have posted pictures of themselves with their placard or something like that. But they don't actually hang out with any Black women. So if you are wanting to be a true ally and you don't actually have any Black women friends, and that's cisgendered Black women, that's trans Black women, if you don't actually have, and you know, non-gender conforming Black people, if you don't have these people in and around you, who are you being an ally to? Because they're the ones that have been hit the hardest by all of this. So if you're talking about I want to be an ally, but you don't really want to sacrifice anything and you just want a closer proximity, for instance, to black men, then that's not allyship. That's a dating strategy, you know, and I think that it's things like that that need to be observed you're happy with allyship until we're up for the same role because now that they're not specifying girl next door, beautiful as an actor, we're now up for the same role. What now happens suddenly? Oh, they gave it to her because you know, they're trying to tick boxes or maybe because I bad you up when it comes to acting, maybe that's what's happened. Now they've opened the door, more black people have come in and then now it's, you know, it, it's down to you know, made the best actress win. So I, I'm looking at all of those dynamics and thinking nobody. Well, a lot of people don't want to sacrifice anything for what they, you know, for what they're claiming to want to see in society. We're all going to have to sacrifice something, even as black people. We're going to have to sacrifice something in order to get to that place that we all want to reach.
0: Kalechi, there's so much in what you just said that I want to unpack first is that in one of our earlier episodes, we actually talked about relationships and exactly what you just mentioned, the prevalence of self-described allies for racial justice who have no friends of color. They will go to every Black Lives Matter protest while never actually having had an honest and uncomfortable conversation themselves about race with a black person, let alone having deep intimate friendships with black people. And as my guest on that show said, A lot of this has to do with comfort, and in particular, not being willing to sacrifice comfort in order to be in community and in relationship with people who you are claiming to be an ally for. And I think what it comes down to is that in our society, many allies really haven't been socialized to recognize this as a red flag for their allyship, because how can you be an effective ally for people that you have no connection to? On what basis and from what knowledge base? How do you know that you're at all on the right track without this? You know, you're going in with, let's say, a lot of emotion, a lot of sympathy, a lot of empathy, a lot of sadness, a lot of maybe desire for camaraderie, but your knowledge base is very limited to what you read, you know, on whatever news source, because you have never had in-depth conversations with another Black person about what is the real texture of the thing that we're out there marching for? Because when I go to a Black Lives Matter march, it's not just about police violence. It's about all of the ways that systemic racism is is impacting me. And and I think if you don't have those relationships, you're never going to be able to get to that level. At a prior company I worked at, there was a Black employee that had posted a note internally sort of talking about, you know, the the dynamics that Black people in our predominantly white organization faced. And, you know, he talked about working in buildings that had more Black Lives Matter posters on their walls than they had Black people in the building. And it was it was really real, right? And I think when a lot of white people saw that, it's like an old pastor I used to have would say, if you can't say amen, just say ouch. Because <laughs> they're like, that's me, right? Like, that's me. You know, the black pastors have all the good sayings.
1: All the good stuff. <laughs> this is one, one of
0: his many gems. And, you know, when, when, when the message would hit you and you're like, yeah, that's me. And, and and you know, you sort of talked about white women, but I also want to bring in a few other just sort of communities because I think that, you know, what I've seen when it comes to the limitations of allyship for white men, I think it's a very different dynamic, but it has a lot of the same sort of similarities. So I don't want to, you know, let white men off the hook necessarily. You know, we have to understand how, you know, for a cisgendered affluent straight white male, you know, they are sitting at the nexus of so many different forms of privilege. And what I've seen is, you know, very, very few white men have actually even made the performative first step. I think that a lot of white women make that first initial sort of entree into, I desire to be an ally. I will say I've heard 10 times as many white women say that they at least have an aspiration to be an ally than I've heard from white men, especially straight white men. They don't jump in.
1: Yeah, and I know I to- I totally agree. That's why they weren't even a consideration for me. Would can you imagine that? That's why white cisgendered white men were not a consideration for me, especially when we're talking about affluence as well. When we are having this conversation, because I I can't process how they could ever be an ally within a white supremacist patriarchal system. You that receives the most benefits from it, the most privilege from it. How could you ever be an ally, like what could you possibly give up? Well, how could you ever really position yourself to get me into certain positions? I think of Serena Williams' partner, and he mentioned that he was leaving his company and that instead he was going to put, you know, a, a black people or, or something in to be on the board of chair people or whatever. And I remember reading that and I thought, so what does that do? Like if, if the system is so white within this company and you're just flinging a black person or a person of color, you're just flinging them into essentially this lion's den. What are you going to do to protect them? You know, so that's how I sort of think about, you know, and that's no shade to him. It's just what these things that I consider from good natured white men who try to help. It's about, they, lack really an understanding of the complexities and the nuance around just how violent whiteness can be as a construct, not white people necessarily, but whiteness as a construct, just how violent it is. And if something has permeated our society for centuries, it's not simply enough to dash in a black face there and go, look, I've done my bit for society. If all you're doing is putting them in a position to have more violence inflicted upon them. I think that's
0: that's a really great point to highlight, this idea of like, you know, one of the potential limits of allyship is thinking that systemic racism can be solved purely through representation without understanding that we also need resources. We also need a culture change. If all of a sudden you as a white manager, male or female, recognize this call and you look at your team and you say, hey, I don't have a diverse team. And I actually want to do something about that. Great first step. But I think the only step you need to take is not you know, now I need to start hiring some black and and brown people. Because if you do that without changing the culture of your team, without changing the culture and your approach to management, without really looking at your performance evaluation systems and seeing where, without doing all of those things, all you're doing at a certain point is bringing black and brown people into an environment that is very toxic. And then using them as examples of why they can't make it if they don't end up being able to withstand the level of toxicity that, that is that is the environment that you have lived in, in your own sort of obliviousness without realizing like how damaging it can be. So I, I just think that's a really good point. And, and I have, and I will say that I have had a few very good white male sponsors in my career, like who have truly been mentors to me but i think with many of them now we are just having the conversation about the broader system of systemic racism that means that i've rarely had access to those types of people in my company right and and i think i've had more access than most because i am a very proactive person but you know i would look around at almost every workplace and look at the level of just off the cuff casual sponsorship and mentorship that my white colleagues w- would be able to get from senior people that I would have to work so hard to achieve i have to figure out ways to like run into them in meetings and find things in common and tell them what i want to do and tell them how much i and all, all of this work when like i would see so many white colleagues around me just conveniently just just chumming up with various people. And I think that's the type of thing that a white person listening to this, I hope that they start to really reflect on where are the places where I'm just not paying attention to the racial dynamics around me? Because I would say that that's much more important than you know going to the Black Lives Matter March this weekend. Like if that's all you do, don't, don't bother doing that. I would much prefer that you decide to make yourself a true ally at your workplace, where we all spend the majority of our time, versus, you know, being a face amongst thousands at, at a rally. And, and so, you know, I think another big red flag that I have on allyship is that it does create this dynamic of, you know, an us and a them, right? So as a white ally, I act on behalf of or for the benefit of non-white people but ultimately I don't see my destiny really bound up in theirs you therefore don't really see the ways in which white supremacy actually is not just something that holds you know me back and other people of, of color back it also it's not good for you either like you until you become invested in the idea that actually dismantling systemic racism would be better for all of us You know, it's going to continue to be something that you jump into and out of. And so that's why, you know, when I was putting this journey together, for me, it really culminates in anti-racism because that me is a divestment, seeking to divest yourself from the racial hierarchy that we have, as opposed to, you know, seeking to interrupt individual acts of racism in whatever individual instances in which you see it right? You, we need to be committed to dismantling it, not just interrupting it sporadically. And so, Coletia, I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about what you think the difference is between
1: looking to interrupt racism and looking to dismantle it. Definitely. I think that that's just a fantastic question. I read somewhere that it's not enough to be an ally. You have to be a co-conspirator. And I thought that is it. That That to me is it. The allyship feels very stagnant to me i need you to move i mean, i want you to join me in figuring out how we dismantle this system because as you've mentioned it doesn't actually benefit any of us you've been sold lies we have been sold lies let's get rid of the lie like let's all start finding our truths and existing within our truths. But for us to do that, there has to be active participation. You can't be any of this one foot in, one foot out. Like you've got to be all the way in. It even says it in the Bible, like you're either hot or you're cold. We're not doing lukewarm out here. Jesus told them lot that I don't want allies. I want co-conspirators. You know, even then, like you have to have this energy of if we're really going to be about the change, we have to look at the system As it is, take your feelings in some regards, take your feelings out of it because all you're going to tell me is, oh, but my family members, every ally seems to have a racist family member that, oh, they just grew up in a different time. They grew up in a different time. What time was this? What time did they grow up? A time that black people couldn't drink from the same water fountain, a time when black people couldn't use the same toilets, a time when black people came up with the course, you know, the coordinations for getting people into space and they couldn't even be in the same room to watch them go up into space. You're talking about that time. So a time when people were just overtly racist, they missed those times. So your parents, your grandparents were were trash people then And they're basically trash people now because they didn't look at that and look at the progress that we've made, quote unquote, and go, you know what? That was really terrible. What was happening then? I don't want to be a part of that. You're telling me that even after having you as a relative, as a child or whatever, they can't look at you and say, wow, you know what? That was wild. Let me improve. They are still staunchly wanting to hold on to their good old days. So. If you're really talking about allyship, your co-conspiratorial nature means that you need to go and dismantle that. Start in your households because rather than looking at the system, The system's easy because you can kind of remove your emotions from it. Go to the place that hurts, because when you can do that, when you can work on the things that hurt, then you're you you're indestructible. Then we can take on this whole system together. But while you're still emotionally invested in people who mean us hard as a collective, you're not going to dismantle anything.
0: So good. So good. It's funny. A few months ago on my social, I always talk about race and racism and anti racism and sort of what we need. And, you know, one of the things that I'd asked of my friends on social, my, you know, non black friends, especially those who, identify as white and, and have relatives and, you know, have been in the U.S. for generations. I was like, I have a quick assignment for you. I want you to go home this weekend or whenever you see or talk to your parents or grandparents next and ask them, what were they doing during the civil rights movement? Just like check in because, you know, it's so easy. I think about this probably more than is healthy. I think about the fact that the civil rights movement was not 200 years ago. In in the States, right? We're talking about policies that were in place and actively enforced in the 1950s and 60s. So that tells me that all the people that experienced that are not dead. Therefore, what I would like to know when I see those famous pictures of, you know, the white men and women that are spitting on the girls that are trying to integrate, you know, an elementary school. And when I see the pictures of the officers that are holding the, the hoses and dogs to be released on Black people, I just want to know, Less than I want to know, oh, that was Martin, that was Malcolm, that was Rosa Parks. I want to know who are the white people that are around them? Do we know who those people are? Do we know what they're doing now? will we find that a disproportionate number of the people in those very terrible photos went on to decades long careers as school superintendents where people would send their school send their students and their kids are they CEOs of places where i probably won't be able to get a job or if i do like i'll be wondering i wonder why i can't get promoted might that be why And I'm like, I'm just like, I feel like as a white person, especially socialized in this country, you should want to know if you truly aspire to be an ally, you should want to understand your particular like history, your familial history, your neighborhood history. Another assignment was, you know, look up what the racial covenants were in the neighborhood that you live in right now. Just see what racial covenants were on the book. Until what point was it illegal? for a family that looked like mine to buy property in that neighborhood. Because that's gonna explain a lot more about why your neighborhood, your kid's school, your church, et cetera, is all white. Not this idea that like black people just don't wanna work hard and and therefore they can't like move up the economic ladder and X, Y, and Z. It's like, no, it was actually illegal. And up until a certain point, if a family like mine moved in, we would be chased out of the neighborhood. So, who's violent? Whose people are violent? It doesn't seem like it's mine. Yet that's the narrative that that we're told. So, I just love that you pointed out this idea of, you know, taking it back to the places that hurt, the places where you can't get emotional distance and and really being committed to dismantling racism there. because if you can only be the ally in a room of other woke white people, Then, what are we doing? And so, I I just think that the level of gems that you've dropped on us today have been high. (laughs) And I already know that we have probably a number of people leaning in and a number of people swarming. And, you know, this is what we're here for. We're not here for comfort, we are here for encouragement and, you know, the push to continue the momentum of what we saw this summer and spring, which was. Yes, a record number of people who are not Black saying, maybe this does need to be addressed. Maybe this does need to be looked at. So I'm curious what you would say, Kalechi, to someone who thinks that, you know, they listen to this now and they're like, damn, I I think that's me. I think I may have been performing a version of allyship that was ultimately performative or problematic. How can they do better? What, What can they start?
1: I would say, dear listener, you got this far, well done, because it's an uncomfortable conversation. I can't you know, imagine what it's like to listen to someone point out, you know, uh, two people pointing out the, the, the things that you might have missed out because you thought you were doing so well. And that's not to say that you're not, because the very act of listening to this podcast, to listening to this episode, means that there is a power within you that wants to be enacted and manifested into the world, right? It's just about having the direction for where that energy needs to go. So, ideally, the first thing I would say, the main thing I would say, get your energy levels up, all the way up. Eat more greens take all the, the alkaline, whatever lifestyle that you like, get your energy level all the way up because all of this empathy fatigue or I'm just so tired. I didn't know that it was this bad. Oh my God, this is so overwhelming. I can't believe that you've been living like this. Like I heard so many white people saying over the summer, like racism is still here <gasps> and you and you guys were living through it. But Kalechi, I've seen you laugh. I've seen you have joy. <laughs> How can you have joy when all of this has been happening? So what did you want me to do? To lie down on the floor and die? Like, I've I've, I've got to keep moving. We've had to keep moving. So if you're feeling exhausted by just that tiny recognition of the, just the vastness of what we go through in our global Black experience, you need to get your energy levels up because there's still so much more for you to learn. First, you've got to go look in your family history, then you've got to go and look at your country's history. Like you mentioned, like look at your neighborhood's history, then your country's history and how all of this came to be. Then you now need to focus on the present and look at how those same dynamics are still pervasive today. That's going to need a lot of energy. That's like 50 million marathons. But if you're really wanting to go the distance, then this is how you do it. Get your energy levels up. And I mean that physically, emotionally, mentally, get all the energy levels up because it's not an easy war, but we can, every little battle and the main battles with ourselves, right? We're the ones that need to, you know, unlearn so much. So once you're able to do that, those mini battles, moment to moment, checking yourself moment to moment, like, I don't see why you can't win.
0: Yeah, I love that. I shared in an early episode, this metaphor of veganism and the commitment that I've seen people have to adopting a vegan lifestyle, despite the fact that every restaurant is just about conspiring against you, right? You have to ask the ingredients every place you go to, right? Yet I have seen So many people and like, yes, definitely tons of white people decide that, you know what, this is a lifestyle I'm committed to no matter how hard it is. They will research. They will figure out this is how I'm going to get protein now. This is how I'm going to like that level of fortitude and committedness and just sort of being just indefatigable. That's what we need when it comes to systemic racism. That's the level of allyship that will help us. The level that refuses to be deterred refuses to be fatigued, refuses to be scared off or warned away or told that it's too hard, you are committed to this because you believe that it is actually better for you. And truly, it is better for you. It is better for all of us if we will be able to dismantle this system that has been carefully constructed over generations. So I want to end by just being very concrete. So I'm curious if you can share a story of what I'm calling allyship done right, something that you've experienced or observed, or you've really seen someone, you know, take an act or take part in an action that was truly useful, that would fall under the banner of of allyship, something people can aspire to.
1: One thing that comes to mind is very, very recent. I was doing a panel discussion, you know, one of those Zoom panel discussions. Well, that's how we met. So I was doing one of those, a panel discussion, and I couldn't see everybody that was listening in. So I only, I was there as the only black woman on the panel. And I was talking about my experiences and I I was very much talking in the way that I'm talking to you now. I just like to, you know, show up as who I am. I'm not going to mince my words. And I we were talking about mental health as well within like the industry. And, you know, I did the talk and it was just done. And that was that. Didn't think anything of it. In fact, I to do that discussion, I remember not charging very much as well because they said, oh, we don't have much of a budget. So I just, I really wanted to do it because they're talking about mental health. And I think that it's important to have a black woman's perspective when we're having these discussions. Cut to a few months later, minding my business, I'm looking through my inbox, my emails, and I see that somebody was listening in. Their camera wasn't on, quite influential, a white person, a white woman. She was listening in, and she reached out and she said, "You know, I really, really appreciate you talking, you know, about your experiences, and I'm reaching out because I was behind the scenes and I I just really thought it was really inspirational and just important that, you know, what you brought to that conversation. I would like you to be one of the judges for this award thing and I went and looked at the criteria Kamala if I was going to go and apply I wouldn't get in I would not get in like I don't meet the I, in terms of what they list I wouldn't I don't meet it the only way I could get in is because they put an asterisk and they said or exceptional people that you know that we come across so this woman is bringing me on off the basis of that asterisk. Like she's just exceptional, forget everything else. And to me, that was important because that means that this white woman has listened about me talking about the fact that we are not in enough rooms. Black women are not in enough rooms that are making decisions. So rather than make a big fanfare about it and tell everyone that you're doing this, she was just like, here you go, become a member. Here you go, I want you to now be a member of this board. And I thought to myself, wow. And, you know, she's willing to kind of guide me along the way as well, which I think is important. You're not just throwing me in, but saying, you know, I can help you in these instances. And I and I appreciate that. I appreciate that because I wasn't asked to change how I present myself. I'm coming as this person and you need my perspective if you're going to last. Otherwise, you'll be another institution that gets the, you know, gets out of here.
0: Yeah, I love that. When I was thinking about this, sort of what example would I share I had, it also was sort of something kind of in the workspace and the professional space, how people can really show up to make a difference. So I have a very good friend that, you know, we went to college together, a white woman who's been a best friend for you know, years and years. She works at a very prominent digital company and she is amazing at her job. She kills it. She also, unlike most white women, has cultivated and made a practice of cultivating like a very racially diverse team at every company that she's been at. And, you know, in most cases when I've been at companies and I've noticed, you know, where I find pockets of people of color, I usually find a black leader or a Latinx leader who brought them in. So I would say, you know, she's going against the grain from that perspective and just every day in her professional work without seeking out accolades is just mentoring and bringing in and bringing up people of color. So there was a moment recently where one of her leaders left and it would have been so easy for her to say, you know, I can do that job because she absolutely can do that job. But she took a moment to look around and said, there are no black or Latinx leaders at that level in our company, period, and there need to be. And so don't put me up for that role. We should hold out for a buy POC leader, period. And I will I will help out in the interim when I can and, and try to take on as much, you know, a, as we're looking, but we should prioritize Black leadership in this role or Latinx leadership in this role, period, because we don't have enough. To me, that is what it means to be an ally because talk about giving something up. You have more than earned it through the work that you've been doing. The qualifications are met, but there is a deeper desire to see a room of decision makers that reflect the world that we live in than there is to advance one own's, you know, individual career. And so when we talk about being willing to sacrifice something, that's an example of what it can look like. Because I think similarly to the story that you shared, Kalechi, I'm sure that this woman had a ton of other white friends that she could have recommended. Right. That maybe all would have been great.
1: Definitely. Who met
0: the criteria. Right. Who would have met all the criteria that the board put together. But it's basically saying, what am I willing to give up in service of this broader Initiative that I think ultimately is where we need to move towards without seeking recognition for it. Just just do the work. Don't start the social media handle. Don't start the protest blog. just, Just do the work. So I don't think that we can say it much better than that. So I think we should call it. Allyship is so important, but it's just not enough. This is not meant to deter you from allyship. This is meant to fuel you to the right version of allyship and to fuel you to keep moving through the funnel to unlock true anti-racism, which is where we really want to get to. So thank you so much, Kalechi, for joining us today and sharing so much of your knowledge and perspective.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Kamala. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: Of course. Now, before we go, tell everyone how they can follow you and your work.
1: Yes. So I'm on at Kolechnikoff. So that's K-E-L-E-C-H-N-E-K-O-F-F. Kolechnikoff, like the kind of like the gun. So on all (laughs) social media, that is me. Same name everywhere. And I've got a podcast as well called Say Your Mind.
0: Yes. I love it. I'm very, very excited about your podcast as well. So thank you so, so much. So friends, we are nearly done. We are moving into our final episode. We're going to jump right into anti-racism. And we have some amazing guests lined up to come through. And these folks don't just talk about anti-racism. They really live it. So I'm very, very excited to share them with you. Till then, I want to encourage you all to think about where you are in the journey. And commit to taking one more step in the direction of going deeper into the funnel. Wherever you are, there is more forward to go. I'm your host, Kamala Avila salmon and this has been From Woke to Work. Talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us and for making it this far. As always, I'm Kamala Avila salmon And you can follow me on social media at The ks one Subscribe now wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to rate us to help more people find the show. From Woke to Work was produced by me, Kamala Avila-Salmon, in partnership with Julian Lewis and TJ Bonaventura at StudioPod. Edits were made by Nota Lab. Our amazing artwork was designed by Tommy Gomez. And this fire track I'm speaking on was produced by Dave Contrap. Until next time.